Welcome to What is Truth, a Catholic apologetics podcast that seeks to help others find the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. It is my prayer that through today's episode, the Holy Spirit would sanctify both you and I in the truth. Welcome back to What is Truth. I'm your host, Jack Morgan, and today on the podcast, we have a very interesting and um, special episode. And I say special episode pretty much every time. That's why I added the word interesting. Um, That's because every episode is special, but this one has come about in a very providential way through uh, a series of events in in, uh, my personal life with just talking to friends about different things and so I decided, uh, I heard about this book written by this wonderful woman named Carrie Grass on the topic of an anti-Mary. And so we're going to talk today about um, what the anti-Mary is, where um, Carrie got the inspiration for that, as well as um, how we can rescue our culture from uh, kind of toxic femininity. And I'm really really excited to talk to her about this um, and just like really get to to hear more about how she came upon this, um, this idea, especially because I love the book so much, but I'm really interested just to to hear from her um, and then maybe, you know, encourage other people to, uh, you know, read this book because I really um, feel like it's one of those books that, that every Christian should read right now especially considering uh, where our culture has gone and where it seems to be uh, on trajectory to go. So anyways, uh, Carrie, before, um, well, one, Dr. Carrie Gress, um, just just so that we know she's a doctor, it's pretty awesome. Um, but uh, Carrie, could you introduce yourself and maybe, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a doctor. I have a PhD in philosophy. And I'm a mother of five children, um, 13 down to age two. Um, I homeschool a couple of them and other, a couple others are in school. And of course, the two-year-old is um, just two, um, not in school. Um, I am a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., as well as a scholar at um, Catholic, Catholic University's um, Center, um, and I am the editor of the theologyofhome.com. Um, it's a blog, but also a store um, where we sell Catholic lifestyle products. Um, we actually were probably, the, I think, one of the first out there selling products for women um, that had really a, a Catholic bend to them. Um, and part of that actually came about because of the the research that I've done on the anti-Mary and just really recognizing where you know, what, how women have been led astray. And a lot of it happens through culture and marketing. And um, so as kind of a way to push back against that, my friend Noel Maring and I started a blog called theologyofhome.com. And we've published books with the same name. And we've got all kinds of um, just different ideas and, and um, projects kind of generating out of that. So it's been a really fun, fun effort to be involved in and um, just to help women understand who they are. I think you know, one of the things we're dealing with in the culture is just not understanding what a woman is, as we know, Matt Walsh has made so clear. And um, so it's been 
really great to be able to sort of press into that and say, well, what is, you know, how do we define a woman? How do we um, kind of create a new grammar for women to understand themselves? Because for a very long time, we haven't haven't done that um, and, and don't really even know how to speak in terms of womanhood. So um, that's really by and large, you know, how I spend the, the bulk of my time is really focused on on that effort. Yeah, I I have to say, one, I'm really excited because I'm going to interview Noelle on her book, uh, Awake oh, Not Woke, soon. Mm-hmm. And and so both of y'all are amazing. I, I believe that the two books that y'all have written, and I don't say this about many books just because I think that if I were to say this about every book, then nobody would ever read. So I try and keep it, uh, or nobody <laughs> would be able to read um, as, as all the books in the world. But I think that particularly in the way in which our culture is going, that the anti-Mary exposed and awake, not woke are like a necessary read um, for like literally every single Catholic, just because of the way in which um, our society is going. And I think in particular, your book does a really good job of exposing not only are these ideas like wicked, um, Mm -hmm. but they, they have something deeper below the surface and just like, oh, they're bad ideas, you know? Um, so there's, there's a spiritual realm. There's a realm Mm -hmm. beyond just the visible that, Mm -hmm. um, is, is in, in ways, um, perpetuating this, Mm -hmm. um, obviously it, human beings have free will, but, um, there's still that, that influence from the, um, the heavenly realms, both the uh, positive heavenly and the the negative heavenly realms. So, um, but yeah. So, anyways, could you tell us a little bit about how you started to come about um, writing this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, well, the the idea for it really came. I wrote a book called The Marian Option that was um, really a response to the the Benedict Option written by Rod Dreher, and just a recognition that. Um, you know, of seeing how Our Lady has sort of helped Christians throughout the centuries in just these miraculous ways. You know, we we know that the the largest recorded um, evangelical effort was, of course, Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, and it, it's just to see how she has worked and been pulling strings. You know, sort of behind the curtain, um, helping us out over the centuries. And so that's was um, was that book. But in that book, I had a chapter called "Are We in the Age of Mary or the Anti-Mary." And um, it was really fascinating to look at this because, um, that first of all, that the idea of the anti-Mary came because I was writing, I was looking at the, the elites in our culture today, the elite women, and, you know, just looking at a lot of the characteristics of them, they're very uniform and um, kind of all, um, you know, maintain and, and um, adhere to this this specific kind of ideology, but they're not just like Christians who have sort of like, fallen to the wayside a little bit, but they're actually anti-Mary in terms of the values that they have. And we see this certainly most clearly with the abortion issue, um, the opposition to life. Um, but we also see it in the ways in which um, really manhood is is held up as the, and, and not good manhood, um, you know, the a masculine in a very distorted form is held up as sort of this ideal of womanhood and has been for, for 50, at least 50 years. Um, so that's really where the idea started was in that book was just recognizing, okay, we, Mary has been all over um, the map, you know, throughout this, certainly this past century, starting with Fatima and um, just the different ways in which she's been interceding and, and making herself known to Christians and, and helping us. And then on the opposite side of that, we also have this, this burgeoning 
um, anti-Marian spirit that's really taken hold of, I think, women since the 1960s. And, um, you know, certainly in my own life, I could see it at play and, uh, you know, just so grateful for having a conversion to the faith and, um, you know, marrying consecration and all these things that we do that we know our, our lady, you know, shepherds us and, and mothers us and, and transforms us um, from where we would, you know, the path that we'd be on otherwise. So, um, that was really the, the, the start of it. And then um, Tan asked me if I could do it just a, a book specifically on this topic and um, of the anti-Mary. And I thought, well, I, I certainly can try. And, um, you know, as soon as I signed the contract, I was like, what if I don't find anything? You know, it's sort of this panic set in. Um, like, what have I got myself into? And um, and it was amazing because the more I dug into it, the more I found. And um, really what we've been living with is this cocktail, I call it a cocktail of um, communism and the occult, um, that that's really been the, the, the major drivers that has led to this kind of systemic um, brainwashing that we've, we've been experiencing in the West. And, um, you know, this is the reason why we can't define what a woman is, is because we've been told, you know, the motherhood isn't good. We've been told all kinds of lies about what's ultimately going to make us happy. And of course, you know, I probably wouldn't be nearly as interested in this if I actually saw that women were being made happier by it. Um, but none of the metrics show that women are happier. Um, you know, we have a lot of data that says that women are, are more medicated, but certainly not happier. And, um, so it's those kinds of things that I think have really motivated me to keep digging and looking. And, um, you know, I've just finished a follow-up book for it that'll be out in the fall of 2023. Um, so anyway, it's it's something that I think it's it's huge in terms of the the influence that Aunt Mary has had in the culture. And, um, you know, I've had people who've read the book say, you know, once you see the Aunt Mary, you can't unsee it because um, it's just so prevalent um, among politicians in Hollywood and the fashion industry music industry, book publishing, you know, all of this is really controlled by this, um, you know, this ideology that we're, we're under the thumb of. Yeah, yeah. And and so could you uh, maybe speak a little bit to what that ideology is? And, mm-hmm. and I, I almost find that when discussing this ideology, it's almost like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the differences between like actual and potential infinities where like a potential infinity is like the distance between me and wherever you are in like the mm-hmm. world right now. Like there's a potential points on like if we drew a straight line that we like an mm-hmm. infinite potential. Um, and mm-hmm. I feel that way a lot with like this issue because like, I mean, you do have like an overarching kind of sort of ideology. Mm-hmm. But like, it's really confusing. Like half of it's contradictory. Yeah. Like it doesn't really yeah, yeah. Necessarily make sense. So like, as I was mm-hmm. reading your book, I was like, this makes sense to me, like almost in a mystical mm-hmm. way. But mm-hmm. it's like, some of these like ideologies, it's just like, that doesn't make like, like that doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. Like, how do you add this mm-hmm. up? But like, you can't really necessarily pin it down all the time. But if you were to mm-hmm. try and like, kind of pin it down, like, what would you define like feminism is and kind of what mm-hmm. you were writing against yeah. or what the anti-Mary represents? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and it's a huge question, um, but I can try and distill it as certainly as best I can here. Um, the feminism is hard because it's really should be feminisms. Um, there's just so many people use the words, the word so many different ways. And, you know, that's one of the frustrations is, is the sense of like, um, you know, what do you do with the feminism of Gloria Steinem versus someone like Edith Stein? I mean, these are totally diametrically opposed kinds of ways of thinking. They have different drivers, different motivations. Um, you know, different um, th- threads running through them. So I think that's that's the hard part. Um, largely what I'm speaking of is radical feminism that's very secular. 
um, that goes back to the the really the 1790s with um, someone like Mary Wollstonecraft, and um, that's what my new book does is go through all of these different different stages. But the one thing that we can see starting from the very beginning with with Mary Wollstonecraft is this language um, pops up all over the the feminist the whole history of it where. Um, it's this description of women as as human beings, and of course, it started very innocently. You know, trying to distinguish between women as um, animals or chattel or slaves or something. Um, but what happened is it sort of took on its a life of its own. So you, it, what, what was created was sort of this new category of um, of human beings. So you've got sort of human being generically, and then oh, it can be a boy or a girl. Well, that's totally different than the way that people always thought about humanity. It was always male or female. There was never this sort of overarching human being or personhood category. Um, and you can see this like chipping away throughout the 200 years um, of people using this expression. In fact, I think there's one that was popular in the 70s of, you know, feminism is the radical idea that a woman is a, is a person. Um, mm. Again, this whole echo from back in the 1790s, starting there. Um, and I, and, you know, I, I I actually just published an article. Um, it's on my website, theologyofhome.com. Um, if people want to read it, but it it mentions um, it goes through just these different eras of that that line being used. Um, so then you have someone like Simone de Beauvoir who comes along and says, you know, a woman um, isn't born a woman; she's um, she becomes one. Um, again, sort of reinforcing this idea that we sort of are are inventing ourselves into womanhood, or womanhood isn't something that's biological. Um, and so you see this, this split happening where, uh, you know, womanhood is sort of um, whatever you want it to be. It's sort of, and this is where, the, you know, the trans world sort of entered into things because now men could be, become women. Um, so it's, it got really messy very quickly. Um, so that, that was certainly one of the ideas. There's, there's also, you know, these other threads that I see woven throughout it. And it was very, very much a part of the 1960s movement, which um, really blew everything open was, um, Certainly this idea of getting rid of gender altogether, making women more like men, men more like women. Um, also free love, you know, getting rid of monogamy, getting rid of, um, you know, even having children, of course, the pill provided an, the opportunity for that, making women even less gender specific because suddenly their fertility isn't really a play anymore. Um, so anyway, it's, it's just been this concerted effort of, um, you know, moving in this direction. But I think one of the areas that that doesn't get a lot of attention is just the in the last 100 years is the influence of co the communists. Um, and I talk about this a lot in the in the anti-Mary in terms of this echo that we see from the Soviet Union, you know, the revolution in in Russia. Um, what do they do immediately? Well, they you know they break up the family. <laughs> they um, have husbands and wives have different days off. Uh, the children are raised by somebody else. Abortions legalized, um, not only legalized but paid for. Um, so you have these, you know, women who just have abortion after abortion because that becomes sort of the the birth control of of the era. Um, Vicki Thorne, who recently passed away, she founded Project Rachel, and she, which is a healing ministry for people who've had abortions, and she actually encountered a woman that had had something like eighty one abortions mm. um, because that's just what was available and what they, people did. So you can see how you know, it was sort of pressed upon the Soviet people, but. Um, in the United States, you have the Frankfurt School, you have um, the communists that are very active in infil infiltrating the culture. And um, Kate Millett is a 1960s radical feminist, hugely influential, even though she's not very well known. 
um, but her influence is just vast. Um, but she was one of those that, you know, brought out this idea of, you know, men, men are awful. They start wars. They're the ones that are going to, um, um, you know, they can kill each other. So women have to be just as courageous and be able to kill their own children through abortion. And, um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's fascinating to sort of start seeing all the pieces to come together. Even Betty Friedan's work, the, the feminine mystique, um, actually has some very deep communist roots. Um, she's got some ideas in there that come directly from um, a, a group called the Congress for American Women, which was very much a, a Soviet-sponsored communist um, you know, group that was um, pointed out long before, you know, it was investigated by Congress long before McCarthy came around. And anyway, so there's all these amazing ways in which we've just been told repeatedly that, you know, we shouldn't be home we shouldn't be having children, you know, our happiness is going to come from our careers. And, um, you know, in order to facilitate that, that's one of the reasons why we have to have abortion so that we can have this freedom um, to be happy. Um, that's really what the narrative boils down to in terms of the radical feminism. Um, and again, it's this push to, to get rid of gender altogether and just basically make us really great workers. That's <laughs> what it is, which is what, really what the Soviets wanted, you know, was um, great workers. So yeah, um, it's pretty ugly when you see it all pieced together. Yeah, I, I remember one of the first times that I ever had kind of an awakening to just the power of philosophy mm -hmm. and was in college and I was an evangelical Christian who had just kind of reverted to like believing in Christianity because of moral argument for God's existence based on mm -hmm. some like horrible abortion, like case that I'd saw. I think it was um, Dr. Kermit Gosnell, if you remember him. Oh, right. Or, yeah. Oh, sure. of course. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, this is objectively evil. If we all tomorrow <laughs> just decided that this was, good like we all woke up with amnesia saying you know this is fine then it would still be wrong and so i was like well if that's the case the morality has to be outside of the physical world and if that's true then there has to be an invisible world like and who can right. i mean who would be a lawgiver outside of or a law without a lawgiver you know kind of a c.s mm -hmm. lewisian argument or whatever yeah anyways i had a catholic political theory professor um, at Auburn University, it was crazy. Secular University had all the woke, like crazy wokeness going on um, mm -hmm. at uh, the time. Um, and he really kind of went back through all of history and started mm -hmm. tracing all of these kind of beliefs that we um, have arrove, arrived at as a society to like mm -hmm. heirs in Christian theology, a lot of like mm -hmm. coming from the Protestant Reformation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just was like, wow, this is crazy. Like this has such an influence on the way that people think. Now, obviously a lot of these works, like no lay person is going to read. And since right. like a lay person of like, like mm -hmm. even like just a lay person in general and like society, like a lot of people don't know who Foucault is. A lot of people don't right. know who Marx, I mean, people know who Marx mm -hmm. is, but a lot of people don't, don't know who Nietzsche is, is, you know, right. Mm -hmm. they, but they they're mm -hmm. like literally they'll say something and i'm like oh my gosh that's the most nietzschean thing i've ever heard in my entire life you know <laughs> right. um right but it, it's really f crazy to see just how big of an influence that these people have had and particularly communists i'm reading a, a work on the fulton she wrote on communism um mm -hmm. right now and it's it's remarkable so 
Um, just for those who are kind of not familiar per se with the idea mm -hmm. of communism, because I do think that mm -hmm. does play such a large role in what we're talking about right now. Could you mm -hmm. maybe explain what communism is and mm -hmm. why, um, one, just Catholics reject it in general, but also why right. like humans should reject it? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, communism obviously is the is the work of uh, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, and um, has been just hugely influential because, um, as uh, Whitaker Chambers makes really clear in his book called Witness, which if you know people haven't read it, you absolutely need to read it. It's just this amazing work because Chambers had been very deeply embedded in the communist movement and them um, as a spy, and and then was able to get out of it and um, some amazing court case back in the I think it was it was in the forties. Um, in any event, it, it really has, um, it's a godless ideology that basically is is trying to um, make the state and um, make labor really um, a god um, and make the, you know, the means of production, you could go to the state, you know, all of those kinds of things that kind of get, are, are droned in through, um, have been droned in through different governments, you know, for the last hundred Hundred years. I mean, this is really what the. If you look at the Soviet Union, this was was the effort to make everything um, owned collectively. Nobody, there's no private property, um, and people are are you know supposed to be great workers. And you get rid of this sort of um, bourgeois attitude, which is real the, the, the real enemy. Um, which of course you, you know is the, the family and capitalism and private property. You know, all of these things are really the the targets and the enemies, especially the family. Um, because the family ends up having more influence over an individual than the state does, and that's what they they don't want. Um, so, you know, if you've spent any time looking at the Soviet Union or um, Poland is a, a great example. There, um, you can see even things like architecture. They they um, did these did things to make sure that people didn't have a place to meet. You know, you've got buildings where there's many different entrances. There's no common area where people can gather and that kind of thing. So. Um, so anyway, that's the real effort is to to create workers um, and without the family, and then the state really takes care of of everything. Um, and that's kind of the overriding idea of it. Um, and you you know, as far as it, it, civilizationally, it, you know, it's a disaster because it destroys the family. Um, we know when you destroy the family that the culture is 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 not going to be far behind. Um, but it also it. it puts into place um, really the state as a kind of God. Um, and you hear this a lot when you, when you, you know, reading some, there's a new book actually that just came out by, um, about Bella Dodd, who was another one of these communists that was able to get out of the movement when she, she was an American, um, very involved in the teachers unions in the 1930s and, and influencing um, the way that education was, you know, communism was infiltrated into that. Um, so yeah, it just becomes its its own god. People are beholden to the the state or or to the party itself, and their you know their marriages, their their relationships, their sexual relationships, their children, all of that is really comes underneath that um, instead of uh, you know what we would understand to be an ordered family and you know based on love, it's really based on power. Um, and I think that that's really the a key piece of it that we see in the women's movement too is. Um, the role that power has played uh, in in controlling the the way that women think and and the way that they behave and certainly the way that they vote. Yeah, and I feel like one of the things that we can look at communist ideology and really pinpoint it as something that's being super influential in culture right now is the kind of idea of like 
um, I guess it's not class guilt anymore, although there is mm-hmm. that um, in the Bernie Sanders or, or other mm-hmm. kind of I- ideologies, but say like um, in, in a cultural Marxism way, the idea that like, you know, it's the structures of society that are the, the mm-hmm. only thing which is responsible for um, problems. And that's because like as yeah. a collective, like the collective is more important mm-hmm. than the person. So therefore, like mm-hmm. you don't need to change the person. You need to change the collective. Like the yep. the person will just change with the collective. So humans mm-hmm. um, don't have any autonomy in the sense yep. of like the, the, the capacity to choose the good. Um, mm-hmm. They're just they're just kind of like cogs in a machine that just like choose mm-hmm. whatever um is the system like kind of has originated them to play so it's basically is a very mm-hmm. dehumanizing philosophy um yeah. however it plays like very um influential roles in like movements where they're like you know we got to like turn tear down the system it's not like no we mm-hmm. need to change hearts you know like mm-hmm. it's more so we need to tear down the system you know the system's screwed right. um right. and and it's and it's, those are yeah those are more recent developments i mean the, the fundamental kernel is really the um the oppressor and the oppressed. And um, you can see that with the male and female, the woman is supposed to be the oppressed, the male is the oppressor, you know, uh, destroy the patriarchy, that kind of language is really what's what's been been the thrust of, of the movement. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think that that's been the interesting thing is just to see that this it's it is this belief that it's, um, it's a systemic issue. And so um, free will isn't an issue. Love's not an issue. It, it's just a matter of overturning things and certainly my you know noelle marrying will cover all of this much in much greater detail than i ever could um but it's fascinating to see that change in in the minds of people where it it, it's no longer you know i have agency to do what's good or bad instead it's it's the structure of the system that is creating the 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 oppression and that's where, where we're at now for sure yeah um so could you go in a little bit more detail um, about why like the concept of anti-Mary in particular comes mm-hmm. from? So like yeah. whenever people hear anti-Mary, they're like, okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about like the antichrist, et cetera, I think that mm-hmm. might be able to elucidate that yeah. for others. No, I think that's a great question. You know, I, I split, <laughs> this book came out four years ago. So I've been talking about it for a long time. So it sort of feels like second nature, but um yeah, the idea really came from, um, the, you know, there's obviously the, the idea of, a, of an antichrist, um, but St. John speaks of a spirit of an antichrist um, that he says, you know, one of his letters, he talks about how it's it's already in the world and it, it's a spirit. Um, and so that's really what I mean by it is not, you know, that there's one specific anti-Mary, um, we, although we have some pretty good candidates for it. Um, but I think it's more of a spirit that has, has um, captured um certainly the elites and that that they're using um you know again for leveraging power and and control um for their own ends instead of obviously what we would think are you know the proper ends of the common good and and humanity and man and um certainly you know what is objectively good so um yeah it's it's certainly something you can go back to the 1960s there's there's a whole spiritual layer and level to it um you know especially the more you dig into the occult and uh, um there's only so much of that you can stomach certainly as a researcher um so that some of that is in the book um but i think that just on a rational level there's also you can just see very very clearly how much the the feminists were able to leverage things like television um, they were able to to use politics very effectively, fashion, 
um, you know, commercials, all, all of these kinds of things to really spread the, the message that they had. And, um, you know, women are very influenced by fashion. And I think we think of it as a virtue when it comes to clothing. Um, but we don't really realize how much we're, we're influenced by it ideologically or, you know, within our thoughts and what, how we think about things as well. Um, so a lot of us might think that we're free thinkers until you sort of start pressing into this and realize, like, actually, you know, this, this radical expressivism that you think you're expressing is really not unique. You're really conforming to what um, the culture is, is presenting to you. Um, and I think also you're going to see the the celebrity culture. I mean, it's just fascinating to me that Alyssa Milano still has a platform. Like, yeah. I grew up watching Who's the Boss. You know, I mean, I know she was obviously in movies and things like that later, but the fact that you know she says anything and it still gets gets covered is just a remarkable thing to me. Um, but that's really how it works. Is just this the fact that you, as long as you're a celebrity, we're supposed to you know stand up and listen and really. Um, you know, follow what it is that that they do, and and this is you know part of the the grip that they have on us is um, that we've been kind of trained to this. And you know, I mean, for probably a better example is a show like The View. You know, they've got, got like how many women? Maybe five women on there, um, but they will never have equally represented conservatives and liberals on that show. They usually only have one. Um, maybe two, depending on who the guest is. Um, and typically, it's more moderate. Not to not to shame Very like moderate. a moderate person, yeah. but like it's no. not like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not Rachel Duffy, although she's been on there several times. But it's not you know, it's not someone like that. Um, so that's the frustrating thing is that it, you know they always um, slant things so that it appears that the left is really much more powerful than than it is, and so. For the rest of us, we're just sort of left thinking that we don't have any voice and we're by ourselves and we're alone and you know all of this. Um, when in fact, we we actually are much better represented than we we realize. We just don't know that you know we exist because it's just controlled so much by um, the spin and the way that they they make it look so one sided. Yeah, and so um, kind of making sure to like um, really hit on the the power of this book i found that your expositions on womanhood and mm -hmm. um your insights on womanhood which i'm sure you'll just mm -hmm. attribute to the church or whatever but like mm -hmm. um like i found them deeply insightful and deeply good for me to just like appreciate my sisters my girlfriend mm -hmm. my mom more mm -hmm. um but could you like explain what a woman is and like the beauty mm -hmm. of who a woman is. Um, yeah. Obviously we know a woman is um, biologically speaking, like, you know, has uh, two X chromosomes, but like mm -hmm. the, the gender role um, mm -hmm. of women, yeah. the, how their body like kind of reflects how they act in reality. Like what is a mm -hmm. woman? Like what, who is, I mean, like what, right. what are women suppo like, supposed to be and like what is mm -hmm. natural to them and their natural right. desires? Um, so mm -hmm. that, yeah, we can then say like, okay, here's why feminism sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, and that was one of the things that was really important to me in this book was there's so much dark content at the beginning of it. And I didn't want to leave the reader with that, you know, just the darkness. I thought, how do we, how do we look at this in the positive and how do we really start seeing things in an ordered way um, and in a hopeful way? And so um, the whole second half of the book really focuses on that much of it within the context of who our lady is. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, one of the things actually I used a lot of, of ancient mythology, which I found fascinating and really enjoyed plugging into, um, you know, things like, um, looking at the, you know, the body of a woman. I mean, this is one of the things that feminism has done. If, if you people read Judith Butler, um, and, and a lot of contemporary feminism, you know, you're not supposed to be an essentialist. You're not supposed to say that the body informs what is happening on a spiritual level in, or interiorly. Um, that's not supposed to have any kind of connection to it. Um, and it's kind of genius on their part to really vilify this because then you're not allowed to look at, you know, hips and breasts and, you know, all, wombs, all of these kinds of things and say, well, maybe these have a purpose. Um, and that's a really, that's certainly the real tragedy that we see among you know, certainly teenage girls that are, are transitioning into boys is that they don't know what the purposes of these things are because there's never mm -hmm. been put in a context for them. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that we can't get away from motherhood. And of course that sounds scary to people because not every woman is a mother. Um, but there, every woman is called to a certain kind of mothering of other people. Um, mothering is really a, a, a way where we, you know, we take people into our, our hearts. I mean, when you, when you're a mother, biologically, you have a person inside your body you're, you're their first home. Um, but we can do that on a spiritual level too, or an emotional level. We can take people into our hearts. I mean, how many times do we think of mothers praying for their children, um, or, you know, anticipating their needs before they, the children may even know that they have them. Um, you know, the, the, that kind of maternal care um, that we talk about and we can see and we can experience and we, you know, when we experience it, it's, there's something very beautiful um, about it. Uh, obviously, it can be twisted and distorted and, you know, the culture really plays those things up with something like the hands and the tail. Um, but that's not the, you know, the ordered sense of it. The ordered sense of it is really being mindful of others and, and taking others, taking the life of others into who we are and improving them. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the aspects that we've, we've really lost, um, because the word mothers become so taboo. Um, another one is just this, this idea of vessels. Um, this was a, a fun piece to look into it was, you know, in romance languages, you have all of these words that are feminine and, you know, largely they're feminine because, um, or often they're feminine because they're considered these words are containers, things like um, a church, the, the church is, is feminine. Um, a ship, you know, why do we name ships after females? Um, it's because it's kind of vessel. Um, women also have the capacity to transport people to move them. I mean, you can think very quickly of, um, you know, a woman who's a, a kind of mentor that she's going to dramatically change the life of somebody that she mentors or a teacher. Um, you can also see the opposite very, very easily of, uh, you know, a woman who sort of destroys a man because of her own vices. And, um, you know, he gets kind of hooked into them and he she takes him to a place where he doesn't want to go. Um, but he willingly goes to anyway. Um, so I think that's another issue is, is transportate, you know, transporting things. So um, all of those were, were really interesting to me um, to sort of see, you know, this, this ancient, these ancient concepts play themselves out and then obviously not in any way be um, contradict the, the faith or the, the, what the church teaches, in fact, even buttressing it. Um, you know, if you go into a church, the main part of the church is called a nave and that's named for a ship. And that's, um, you know, it's where the word navy comes from. Um, that's where the people are held. You know, it's just, a, again, that kind of feminine layering going on. Wow. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of, of, of richness there, but the problem is we have to get past these taboos of, you know, 
telling women that you're being a mother on any kind of level is important. And the other one is, of course, homemaking. Um, you know, what a what a terrible taboo word that is right now. And yet everything about homemaking, all the elements of it, such as cooking, knitting, sourdough starters, you know, all these kinds of things are very, very popular. Gardening, um, you know, herbs, all these things. Um, all these elements are are really back in style again but you know again you can't say oh i want to be a homemaker you know people people think you're crazy um so it's it's interesting to me to see you can see very clearly how you know they've taken these essentials of womanhood and really distorted them um so that we just have this kind of natural reaction against them instead of just saying well what does this really mean at the core um and how do we see this in an ordered way instead of the distortions that they've um, put forth for us again with something like the handmaid's tale or um and whatnot yeah and could you go really briefly into what mary uh the, well not what but the role that mary actually mm -hmm. has played in i guess increasing the like rights of women's or women yeah. in in society or like the the image of women mm -hmm. um because i found that to be a very fascinating uh, part of your book is, I mean, it wasn't necessarily like a, a big bulk of the book, but it was mm -hmm. definitely a pretty uh, like thought out uh, portion yeah. of it where you talked about how Mary actually um, is sort of what empowered women in a lot of ways in, in yeah. the cultures that we live in. Yeah, no, I mean, this is another one of those fascinating historical elements that I don't think people have a sense of. And, you know, it's sort of ironic that we view Mary as some kind of oppressed woman um, or, uh, you know, symbol of some, some working against us as women. Um, because really, if you look at, at other religions, um, women were never held up to be equals in, in um, religion, certainly not Islam, even Judaism, you know, you've got, still got polygamy, um, is, it still creeps in in different places and, and women didn't have the same kind of, of dignity. Um, that only came obviously with Christ. You know, we see him treating women very radically different. Everything, you know, Mary Magdalene is, of course, the perfect example um, beyond Our Lady. Um, just that the relationship that he had with women and the dignity he, that that he treated them with and and showed them, and then of course that um, just grew as as Christianity grew. But of course, you know, the early years of the the Church, you don't have a lot of emphasis on Our Lady. That was something that came later. Certainly, with different apparitions, um, the regard was there, but I think as um, you know, it's something that's grown over time. Um, but that's really where you you come to see the way that, that women are are seen as, um, you know, they can be models of her um, and her capacity to love and her capacity to be surrendered. To, you know, ultimately to to really living the life that God calls us to live um, in beauty and love and and goodness. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't touch on it earlier, but I, I think the, the main pieces of what women really want are we want to be beautiful, which, you know, people can scoff at that, but look at the beauty industry, how much money women spend on that and beauty magazines and, you know, all of those kinds of things. It's, it's ab absolutely um, a piece of, of the soul of a woman. Um, we want to be loved and we want to do something good. And, um, you know, I've told this story before, but after I wrote this book, um, and I looked at all those things within the context of Our Lady. I mean, this is who she is. She's, you know, every apparition that's ever been had of her, the person always says she was the most beautiful woman 
I've ever seen. Um, and St. Therese actually had an apparition of Our Lady when she was a little girl. And she said, you know, she was so beautiful, you would want to die just so that you could see her again. Um, mm. And, you know, she was also good. She did God's, whatever God's will was in every, you know, second of her life. Um, but she was also deeply loved by the Father. And that, you know, that's one of those things that I think most women don't know. Um, and this is where we get off on the wrong path is how deeply loved we are. Um, we're beloved, that beloved relationship with God, the father. Um, so anyway, I wrote all of these pieces and, and that part of the book and just that explanation of it. And then my, I went on vacation. I was actually working with them, with my family and we were up in Philadelphia staying in a hotel and, um, friends and someone had just said, Oh, you guys should watch the Hallmark channel. Cause I'd never seen the Hallmark channel. Um, and I think we watched two or three movies. Um, I was with my girls and the boys were in another room and, um, I was like, okay, I got it. This is the whole theme, you know, you, and you, it doesn't take much because you can, you know how the Hallmark movie works, but um, you know, it's a woman looking beautiful. She goes back to her hometown and she meets a man she's going to marry and she's like saving a library or something. So it's all those three elements, you know, she's doing good. She's deeply loved and she's, um, she's beautiful. Um, so anyways, it's, it's fascinating to see how even popular culture has, has, has recognized this. And that's really where the success of Hallmark comes from um is is because they've tapped into those desires of women um albeit in a very shallow and uh, often disordered way um especially as they've gone become more woke um but i think that mm -hmm. th those are the things that women need to know about themselves that those are the drivers and how do we how do we order them how do we begin to understand our beauty and the capacity of our beauty to influence others you know in light of god's love for us um and how do we do how are we authentically good so all of those pieces sort of need to work together, but you, we can't do it with the mix that we're being given by the culture currently, for sure. Yeah. And what would you say, um, as like men, what, what could men do in order to help women in, in this area? I mean, especially like the women um, in our lives. I mean, like how, how can we love them? Mm -hmm. How can we, um, support yeah. them in, in a way in which, um, is, is ordered towards, um, you know, I guess, not falling into this kind of, uh, you know, trap of, mm -hmm. of radical, you know, feminist ideology. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great question and really a challenging one, because one of the things that we see in the culture is that women have sort of gained the upper hand in terms of their status. You know, a woman isn't, you know, we have to believe all women and, and or every emotion she feels has to be validated and, you know, all of these kinds of things that um, end up really silencing men. I mean, that's just ultimately what happens is this, this silencing men don't want to and don't don't want to engage in a way that is, uh, you know, is a conflict with their wives or, you know, their sisters and mothers and all of that. They're um, kind of conflict averse. And we see that even with Adam, you know, before the fall. So it's this is not something that happened because of the fall. I think it was it's, um, in some respects, it's kind of a it's a perfection, but it has to be ordered as well. Um, so I think one of the, th I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I have a lot, I know a lot of couples that have actually read this book together and have had conversations about it and, and tried to go deeper in their own relationship and see um, where the issues are. I think men need, um, you know, I know in my own parish, there's a really amazing men's group um, that gets together and I think is really helping men um, just be men with other men. I think that that's a vital thing that we don't do enough of in the culture. Um, I, so I think that's important, but I, I think what comes out of that also, um, can be just the sense of where, you know, setting boundaries with, um, what we allow our wives 
to dictate and also even our, you know, our daughters, um, how, what are we, you know, what's our daughter wearing when she leaves the house? You know, those kinds of things. Um, these are really important areas for men to, to know, um, that, that they need to be involved and they need to have a voice in. Um, and it doesn't mean there has to be conflict, but there, there has to be some kind of communication going on. Um, so that, that he's protecting these women who are, we are incredibly vulnerable. I think, um, you know, this is one of the things that we don't see a lot of because we're so materially wealthy. Um, but you know, it doesn't take much of a natural disaster for you to sort of see like, okay, <laughs> where are the women and where are the men, um, kind of things and to sort of reveal that vulnerability. Um, so anyway, I, I would just encourage men to, um, to, to have some boundaries, but also conversations. I also recognize it's incredibly hard. And I think, um, you know, a lot of times women's attitudes make men really resentful instead of a sense of compassion or, or even pity. Um, and that's one of the things that I think this book does is help men understand that women aren't, this, this has been an ideology that's been foisted upon us. A lot of us have no idea that this is what's happened to us. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's a, that's a helpful starting place because I, you know, it's really easy to look around and see resentment, um, and anger and bitterness and, you know, all this pent up, you know, anger that just is bottled up after all these years of just feeling kind of pushed around because of toxic masculinity and, you know, all the, the different ways in which, um, men have been manipulated as well. So anyway, I think getting to that point where you can sort of see this as a as a weakness and not as something that's um intentional um or you know women have intentionally made themselves this way that this is something that's been voiced on us is is an important place to start too and i guess kind of another uh point of advice is what would you say to uh young women who may read this or i mean even even mm -hmm. older women who read this and mm -hmm. they they like sense the holy spirit they sense the spirit of truth they they're like wow this is like right but then they're surrounded mm -hmm. by a bunch of other people mm -hmm. who don't yeah. think that way i mean I, I was just thinking recently like the idea of motherhood being you know like something that's like honorable and and sacred like and that it shouldn't be something that we should like you know limit um is mm -hmm. radical in a christian context because very only catholics really believe it and even within a catholic kind of context like that goes even deeper to where there's only mm -hmm. a, a remnant of catholics that really like are like oh no i'm not gonna just try and like limit my children to like four or five you know not not that mm -hmm. saying you need to have more mm -hmm. than that i'm just saying that like mm -hmm. there's like right. oh i'm definitely not gonna have more because you know how hard it is to have children. It's like, I bet. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I have, I will never know. And that's probably like, I just, just so that I don't sound like I'm being misogynistic. Mm -hmm. Like I believe firmly mm -hmm. that, um, mm -hmm. the closest thing that you have to, um, efficacious suffering for the salvation of a soul is a mm -hmm. woman in childbirth. Um, so mm -hmm. like, it's, it's definitely like something that is the most heroic thing ever. Um, but like, you know, I, I think that it's something that they're just, y'all are forced upon, like genuinely, like mm -hmm. you were saying. So like, whenever right. like people come to this realization, they try and share this idea with other people, they make it shot down. It's like, oh, that's just mm -hmm. like way too much. Or like, that's just over right. the top. Like you're taking this way right. too seriously. Like it's not yeah. that deep, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Like what would you say to yeah. people like that? that yeah, I mean, I I think the, the thing that gets lost all the time is really just this understanding of joy. 
Um, you know, this is something that I experienced. I, I had just had my third child. I was actually finishing my, my PhD. I actually worked on my dissertation in labor and delivery um, with the third child because I just had to get it done. Um, and I remember within the first couple of weeks of, of bringing him home and, you know, all the juggling and the exhaustion and, you know, other kids are sick and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember experiencing this incredibly deep joy that came from the suffering um, where the suffering didn't feel like suffering. It felt like I, I knew why I was doing it. I knew how much I love this baby and my other children. And, you know, I think that that's the piece that um, sadly is so lost is, you know, we, we sort of try to recognize the suffering and I think that's important, but we don't see the, the beauty and that element of joy that comes from it. And so I can look back to the, you know, points in my life where there's, uh, it, you know, uh, one of my memories is, uh, you know, it's two in the morning and one of my children is deeply, it, it's seriously sick. And I'm sitting up with her trying to make sure she doesn't get pneumonia, um, just giving her different treatments. And my husband's bring down, you know, holding, taking care of the newborn. He's bringing the baby upstairs for me to nurse every few hours. And, and I'm sitting on the floor, finishing up my dissertation. I mean, it was kind of a disaster, like worst possible scenario, kind mm -hmm. of dynamic. Um, you know, it's three in the morning. I haven't slept and, but it's got to get done and I've got to take care of these children. You know, all of these things have to happen. And, um, you know, there's this joy that just comes in um, that doesn't come from any other way. And I think that there's also a certain amount of courage. There's a certain amount of, you know, these different virtues that a woman develops in these situations that she would, you know, I wouldn't develop any of these, these virtues if I didn't have these children, because I wouldn't, there wouldn't be these demands on me to take me to a place where I was, where I felt like I was beyond my limits. Um, you know, and yes, there have absolutely been moments where I've been like, God, you have to help me, you know, audibly said that out loud, um, because they've just been incredibly rough spots and difficult and painful things and, you know, illness and all those kinds of things. Um, but I think that that's the amazing element is these relationships and these bonds that are formed and that, you know, watching your children grow and become people that, that you like and you, you know, you treasure them and you enjoy seeing their triumphs and you enjoy that friendship and, and just being connected to them. Um, all of those pieces kind of get lost in, in the wash of the discussion about, you know, this is hard. Well, what isn't hard? You know, anything worth doing is going to be hard. Um, so why is it that we've made motherhood somehow not worth doing because it's hard? <laughs> um, especially when you ask people, you know, what's your most treasured possession? They'll say it's my children. Well, then why wouldn't you be open to having more of them? Um, so anyway, I, that's, uh, you know, just my perspective is just feeling like, we need to talk about the, the incredible joys that come from these relationships and that, you know, the tenderness that happens in these conversations where, you know, you're playing with someone when they're going to sleep at night and they ask you funny questions and memories and, you know, all these, those different things that are just absolutely priceless that, um, you know, don't compare in any way to the, the, the work that I do and are, you know, are the things that truly I, I will hold in my heart for, for forever, um, you know, versus some sort of, award or or accolade that i've gotten elsewhere um so that that's the piece that i think we need to talk about a lot more um because the, the suffering just kind of washes it's like labor you know it, you don't you don't really remember it you're open to doing it again um and um you know you know it's pain with a purpose and that that's really i think what motherhood is none of this is in vain it's all has it's just beautiful and supernatural and eternal ramifications 
Okay, and I have one more question, and that is obviously this is a spiritual war. So what um, mm-hmm. what do you recommend? Um, like, what are some resources you recommend that people look into in order um, to learn how to like kind of combat the influence of um, not just the ideology, obviously, because there's an right. ideology, but what the, lit- the like the spirit, the spiritual you know, element, um, yeah, renunciation, yeah. etc. Yeah, I mean, of course, the main thing is is the rosary. Um, you know we all need to be praying at least five decades of the rosary each day um more if we can fit it in i mean this is a nice thing about some you know that the new apps like hallow and whatnot is just being able to pray them at different times throughout the day um that's huge marrying consecration is another thing um absolutely consecrate yourself to our lady um because that's really where you end up you know, where she can really mother you. And, and, you know, I look back on my life and that was absolutely the sea change. And it was when I consecrated myself to her, um, back when I was in college. Um, obviously things like mass and confession, you know, those basic things, um, are, you know, just need to become essentials. And, um, really I think to silent prayer. I mean, that was when, when I was in college or graduate school, actually, my spiritual director said, you need to spend an hour in adoration each day in addition to mass. And I, you know, i looked at him like he had three heads like are you crazy I don't have time for that um and yet I figured out how to make time for it and it was something that I did until I was married and part of it was just I had this conviction like I'm not going to always have time to be able to do this I need to put the time in now um and it really paid off in terms of just having a huge you know a, a contemplative foundation to to be able to discern and to be able to see truth and reality and, and, you know, humble myself and, and see my own vices and, you know, all of those kinds of things, which obviously contribute to a marriage, um, significantly when you're, when you're aware of those elements, um, and your own weaknesses. And it's not to say I don't have blind spots. I'm sure my husband could point those out, but, um, anyway, I think those are really vital pieces is just, um, being able to sit in silence in adoration or in, in front of a tabernacle or even in your own room you know, with a candle lit or something, um, that, that's another key element, um, to discernment and figuring out really what God is, is calling us to in you know, every given moment. Yeah. I mean, if we don't receive our identity from the father and, and allow mm-hmm. him to be the author of our lives, then there's going to be another authority, um, right. that comes in and that's typically the world, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really what I think also what is, is so helpful in those situations where you do feel outnumbered by, the voices of, of other women. And um, it is the, the courage that comes where you can see very clearly and you can even articulate, you know, what, what these differences are. Um, and you can also see that I think that the damage and the heartbreak um, and, the, and that's the hardest part, I think, especially for me, you know, this work that I'm doing is just hearing the stories of women who put all their eggs in the feminist basket and they're like, this isn't what I wanted. This is, you know, how do I get to this place where I'm alone? Um, with no children my parents have died i didn't have siblings you know it's a really you know i have a great career and i have plenty of money in the bank but what else do i have um so anyway i think that there those elements are really um these key elements of prayer and and the church and the the community of saints and that identity rooted in god the father is is are the essentials great so carrie one more time where can uh all the listeners find not only the anti-Mary, but um, any of your other work. Yeah. Um, the anti-Mary case is published through Tan Books. It can be found on Amazon or certainly on my website. Um, I, we sell them at theologyofhome.com, which is also where our books, Theology of Home, 
are available. Um, our second, Noel and my second book, um, Theology of Home 2, um, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking, is actually a really great place to start for women to start kind of finding a new grammar for understanding themselves as women too. I think that, you know, I just want to plug that just to sort of help put in new, um, you know, concepts for us to think about thinking of ourselves as women instead of, you know, as a big question mark. Um, so all of those are available at theologyofhome.com. And then um, people are certainly welcome to read our blog every day. Noelle and I pick um, different articles from around the, the web and just different things that we think women would be interested in and, and publish that each day. Um, just to help women have healthy content in their lives, because that's one of the things that's hardest to find, I think, in the in the world today is content that's not tainted with, um, you know, all kinds of ideological underpinnings. Great. Um, well, once again, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Gress, for coming on. Um, and thank you all for listening. Be sure to te- check out Dr. Gress's work, um, especially the theology of home um, for all the women out there. I've, I've been really impressed just by what I've seen from that. And I'm really encouraged to see what it, the fruit it bears in the future of the church. So definitely go check that out. And uh, be sure to come back next time to see how Jesus Christ and his church are the answer to the question, what is truth? Wait one second before you go again. I am on vacation and did not have the opportunity to record this before I went on break as it is a new development. But if you want to go and purchase Carrie's book, you can do so via the link in the description of this episode and you will get 15% off whenever you type in code truth at checkout. That is T-R-U-T-H, so just go to the gift uh, certificate or coupon code portion of checkout and use code TRUTH, capital T-R-U-T-H, so all caps, TRUTH. Thanks so much, and look forward to seeing you back here next time. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And let those who aid him flee from before his face. Christ is risen from the dead. Trampling down death, trampling.